Welcome to Human Rights Inscripted, a podcast run by law students at American University's Washington College of Law. My name is Kubra Babaturk, and I'm here with my co-producer, Lauren LaVere, and our podcast editors. I'm Galen Molina. I'm Sabrina Davis. And I'm Valerie Cook. Human Rights Inscripted takes a deep dive into several topics within the human rights field, told candidly by professors, professionals, and even students. Thanks for turning into the episode, and we hope you all enjoy. Unlike refugees, they did not cross an international frontier, and at that point we had well-established rules uh, in a whole international network and organization, UNHCR, you know, to deal with uh, refugees. But we really did not have any clear-cut standards that dealt with people who were internally displaced. Faculty Director of the War Crimes Research Office and Co-Director of WCL's Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Professor Professor Goldman takes us through the beginnings of his interest in human rights law. To undertake a big study, uh, and this was Francis Dang, who was uh, Yale Law School grad and uh, had been a foreign minister in the Sudan, very accomplished international lawyer, and he approached me and he said, look, uh, will you undertake and lead this uh, a study for jointly under the auspices of the American Society of International Law and the International Human Rights Law Group, which is now called Global Rights. And I said, uh, sure, I thought that this could be very easy and so forth. And uh, uh, I recruited uh, one of my former uh, foreign LLMs, Cecile Mayer, uh, from the Netherlands, wonderful researcher with a lot of field experience. And, we decided to do sort of a needs-based approach. In other words, looking at what really are the protection and assistance needs of internally displaced persons, and whether or not uh, existing international law uh, was adequate to meet those needs. And it turned out to be a much longer study, and we had to look at it in times of different field during so-called tensions and disturbances and emergency situations falling short of armed conflict, then during uh, internal armed conflicts and international armed conflicts. And so we prepared a really a very, very large study. And then what we did is we identified, uh, I forgot the, would hold me to it, but, you know, 16 gaps or gray, gray areas. Now, obviously, IDPs, because with their national territory, have the same human rights as all other persons, but the reality is the enjoyment of those rights is not the case. If you're forced to flee suddenly, you know, you don't have identification. In many countries, you don't have any identification, and you have to flee to a city or another place. You're, you can't get into schools, you can't access social services, you can't access medical care. And it, there was a disproportionate burden that also fell on women, the elderly, and children. And there was uh, not at all developed the notion of right not to be displaced. Uh, issues like the right to be able to return, very much by analogy to refugee law, that you can't force a person to go back to a situation where they're you know, going to be uh, in physical or other kinds of dangers and so forth. So after having identified these uh, 
these gaps, and there was a team of Europeans, a wonderful Swiss lawyer with whom I worked, uh, Walter Kalin. Uh, we decided that uh, we couldn't do a treaty. And it was a very interesting learning process because there simply uh, was not the political will. Even how you define an IDP could really provoke a lot of problems because many countries like China, which at that time was doing the, uh, I forgot it was the Three or Two Gorges Dam and was displacing hundreds of thousands of people, would not look kindly on this, and other states would look at this in interference and the like. We had to also address non-state actors, which was problematic under human rights standards as opposed to international humanitarian law standards. So you had definitional issues, and then you had also turf war issues. Who, who were going to get IDPs? Uh, the UNHCR, on an ad hoc basis, was dealing with it. The International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, was dealing with this as kind of part of their portfolio. Uh, the organization, OIM, my, for, for migration and so forth. So there were many practical problems. So what we decided to do was we were going to draft something called Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement, a soft law document, which would, in effect, uh, restate a good deal of customary law, which was embodied in treaties like the right to life, physical integrity, other kinds of things, but then have some new legal prescription dealing with uh, 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 the right not to be displaced and so forth and so on. And about 90% of that was uh, written here at this law school uh, by Cecile and me, you know. And uh, then it went to a large conference uh, over that the Austrians uh, hosted. And we, all the relevant actors, ICRC, uh, 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 UNHCR, others were brought in to buy into the process, and they did so. And uh, the document emerged, and uh, Francis Deng presented it, uh, both to what was in the UN Human Rights Commission and then to the General Assembly. And almost immediately, uh, uh, it, 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 it gained popular currency as kind of the document that should guide all people in dealing with uh, IDPs, uh, the Colombian Constitutional Court, the German Constitutional Court, uh, basically uh, regarded as declaratory of customary international law, and the special representative on IDPs used this and so forth. Uh, it was useful. I eventually went on the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, where I was responsible, among other countries, for Colombia, which had one, at that point, about three, three, four million IDPs. Uh, and uh, we created a rapporteurship on internally displaced persons, and I became the rapporteur, and that we applied this in Colombia, and we used it as sort of these guiding principles or the things that should be observed by not only the government, but also the non-state actors involved in the armed conflict and so forth. And then it's been invoked all around the world, and today it is regarded as sort of the authoritative standard. There's a commentary the American Society of International Law published, and, uh, which Walter Kalin uh, did. Uh, so it was, it was a nice thing to be able to be kind of on the ground floor and help to develop these standards and, 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 and to do so very, very quickly. 
it, 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 it uh, was not the normal process where governmental experts, we didn't represent our particular governments or so forth, but where you know, a bunch of international lawyers got together and uh, worked and hammered these things out and uh, drafting and redrafting and so forth. Uh, but it was done very quickly. And as I said, that's, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the guiding principles are really regarded as what everyone will invoke today. And what's encouraging is I remember before this, people in the news media would talk about, well, these refugees. Today, people use the expression IDPs, internally displaced persons. And so it's taken hold and, and so forth. So it's, you know, kind of a great sense of satisfaction to have been able to, you know, to have worked and doing something that perhaps uh, ameliorates the really terribly tragic, you know, conditions. All one has to look at is, you know, what, what's going on in, uh, in our country with uh, Katrina or the terrible fires that have ensued with people just uprooted. They've lost everything. Now, they're, we're in a very advanced country. You can replace documents. You can do things. You're, you know, but even then, it's terribly traumatic. Uh, we even imagine if, if it, your own government, for instance, is the author of the reasons why you have to flee. You know, uh, those who are supposed to be protecting you are actually the ones who are <laughs> forcing you to flee, or there's non-state actors that are forcing you to flee, and then uh, it's it's being uprooted like that is a is a terrible thing. So, to the extent that these things may contribute and put pressure on authorities to, you know, respect minimum rights, it's uh, you know, something I'm pleased with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really isn't a, just an instrumental document in, in the, you know, the body of international law. And I mean, I've used it in, in some research of my own. Um, and I was, it's much larger than the, or much broader in definition than the, the refugee convention. Oh, yes. And I was, I was curious whether or not you, you did that intentionally going into it with the hopes that, that one day it uh, could be used to capture a much larger group well, of people. Like I'm thinking of climate change, refugees in particular. Well, I, I, I mean, you've hit it. I mean, we purposefully had a broad definition, which was one of the problems for a tree. Right. Uh, uh, you know, states would start hammering away. Well, we agree with but not for this group and not for this group. We don't want man-made things. We don't want other things. Climate change. We don't believe in it. We don't, you know, so you get these things. But if you're forced because of climactic disaster, you're going to be an IDP. And it was purposely kept in that way. We, the document is extremely artful. I mean, I wrote a piece for the review of the International Committee of the Red Cross. It was a brief piece on one of their, I don't know, 50th anniversary issues on, on IDPs and sort of stuck to the party line that it's mostly declaratory of customary international law and so forth. And it is in many cases. But it's an extraordinarily innovative document in the sense that it invokes human rights standards which, as you know, under classic uh, international law, uh, uh, human rights law is directed at, at states and not at non-state actors. And, and uh, the IHL principles obviously apply equally across the board. That's, 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 that's standard. Uh, but the human rights part of it uh, applies to all so-called authorities or actors, which means it holds these non-state actors to 
the same human rights standards as 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 a government uh, would, because not all of these things occur during situations of armed conflict. I mean, a climactic disaster, man-made disaster, or whatever, and so forth. And it, you know, certainly does not have to entail uh, armed conflict. So there was some major innovation, and, and fortunately, many governments didn't pick up on it. We were fortunate at the time that uh, the late Richard Holbrook uh, was, I think, in, in the United Nations and so forth, and and he just embraced it and ran with it. So, I mean, having the support of the U.S. government, the Norwegians, the Europeans, and others, and so forth, uh, mitigated against some opposition from the usual suspects and so forth. And, uh, uh you know, so it was just a confluence of events and uh, and the like. And, and as I said, it was helpful that, you know, I, I went on the Inter-American Commission. I had Columbia. We created the rapporteurship, and then we started focusing on IDPs and that the Colombians themselves were receptive. They didn't try to, 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 to paper over. They, they knew they had a big problem and so forth. And they began to be applied there, and then that experience was replicated uh, in other areas and so forth and so on. So, yeah, it's 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 a broad definition, much broader than refugees, which is a very narrow, which is a very narrow thing. Yeah, um, it, you you've mentioned a couple times now that you've that you were very instrumental in the development of the of the Inter American Commission and and have done some some work in. in well, I wouldn't say that the commission had existed for a long time before I went on. <laughs> But I mean, I spent eight years, and before going on the commission, I litigated a lot mm -hmm. before the commission. So it was kind of, it was kind of nice having sat on both sides of the table, being a litigant before them, and then having over eight years to decide a lot of cases and, and argue a lot of cases before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and so forth. So yeah, yeah, I was I was hoping that you could maybe describe a little bit more more work about what you did. It, maybe specifically in Colombia and, and how that's impacted your, you know, your career going forward or? Well, the Colombian, Colombia is an extraordinary country, very complex. It certainly is the country of Garcia Marquez, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have great friends and uh, great affection for the country, but it can be, uh, the armed conflict, of course, was one of the longest 50 some years of armed conflict. And and yet Colombia was able to maintain uh, all the trappings of democracy, free elections, and so forth and so on. Uh, at the commission, one of the things, uh, before I got on the commission, I, 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 I was on the board of numerous of the committees of Human Rights Watch, but particularly at America's Watch, which was in, where Juan Mendez was really directing. And in the early 80s, we introduced uh, international humanitarian law reporting uh, into human rights fact-finding, which was rather scandalous at the time for many people. Uh, but now it's a mainstay. Everybody's doing IHL reporting. And with Columbia, it was very important uh, that when, for instance, we dealt with preparing reports, which has been one of the strengths of the uh, Inter-American Commission, a sort of a global analysis of the situation of human rights, but you simply could not deal with Colombia and the level of violence without focusing in on the armed conflict and the fact that the FARC and the ELNA both uh, were undertaking acts that uh, certainly violated human rights but were clear-cut violations of IHL. Uh, 
And so we departed from what the commission's practice was and why we would prepare a report that would deal with things that would focus in that uh, on exclusively governmental functions like administration of justice and so forth, you know, jails and the like. Uh, we applied human rights standards, but then, but then we addressed all the warring parties, the paramilitaries, the government, uh, the FARC, the LNA, and, and we set out what the framework was that should be observed in the conduct of the armed conflict, and uh, uh, you know, told them that many of the things were going were you know going on were, were were war crimes, crimes against humanity, and that there had to be individual accountability and so forth. So, all of the background over the years, it was kind of nice to be able to come, you know, to the commission and to be able to. And I had eight years with Columbia, and. Uh, it, uh, it just sort of serendipitously during part of this period, uh, a very bright young Colombian lawyer and his wife came here by the name of, or he met his wife here, Ivan Duque, who was my student in the IHL class and also my international law class. And uh, he was recently elected as the president of Colombia. And uh, I had an opportunity to be with him last December down in uh, Bogota and an event, and it was nice to see. And, and and he remembered quite well what he had, what he had learned. And now he's having to preside over probably one of the most difficult transition of justice uh, situations uh, since South Africa. I mean, it's 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 politically fraught and extremely difficult and very Colombian, which means it's quite convoluted in places, and as everyone understands. But uh, these are the kind of nice things if you've been teaching for as long as I have, and, you know, the modalities that have been established uh, 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 under the peace accords and how they're functioning or not functioning the way they should be, and we'll be issuing the report probably uh, by early May, and uh, the hope is I'll go down as president and deliver the report to President Duque and uh, civil society in Colombia. Yeah, so it's a long, long process. It's been a long process with Columbia now. Line of work. Well, I certainly never planned to be a law professor. That's not something I actually planned. And I, I've sort of found that lots of things in life are just serendipitous, quite frankly. I mean, I had always had an interest in, 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 in international. Professor Goldman has described his work in the human rights field as stemming from his outrage. I remember, you know, after 9-11, the policies that were implemented during the first uh, term of the Bush presidency, which uh, I, 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 I just felt were terrible and, and un-American, and you know, and then I, lucky enough, when I left the commission, to I held the portfolio within the United Nations and the old Human Rights Commission of, you know, really the first I was the independent expert, which I expert on nothing, but they call it an independent expert on terrorism and human rights. And, uh, you know, had to do that work. And then I put together uh, uh, a course with uh, the late uh, Chief Justice of South Africa, Arthur Chaskelson, who had been president of the International Commission of Jurists and really one of the towering judicial figures of, of the 20th century. I mean, he just is such a distinguished guy. And so we put this course together and I would teach it. And every year when I, I assigned many of the memos, that were uh, leaked and so forth, the so-called BIBU memo, uh, 
memos, known as the torture memos, it should be. I wrote in the Human Rights Brief, I wrote a piece about that and so forth. And every time I read it, I'm still outraged. Mm. It still gets my blood boiling. And that something like this could come out of the Office of Legal Counsel when it's nothing more than a roadmap of how the torture and if so you torture, this, here's, yeah, the there's things that just outrage me. <laughs> I think it's important. I mean, lawyers in a very privileged position. You people, you know, when you all graduate, you, you you're going to be more or less financially secure, and and you can use those skills, whether or not it's reuniting kids at the border from their families, just abhorrent things that are going on, you know, here and other places and so forth. You, you've got to have that sense of this should not stand. And to the extent that I can help, if it's just money or whatever, you do it. But I mean, as I I like sort of just uh, wading into the pool, sort of, to try to address some of the stuff. No, I understand. And, you know, one of the things that I really uh, think about uh, the international faculty here, and particularly those colleagues of mine in the human rights and IHL area, is uh, these are not ivory, ivory tower academics. I mean, Juan Mendez was a political prisoner. And he was almost killed. And he's devoted his life, thank God, to human rights and president of the Inter-American Human Rights Commission and, and uh, you know, the special rapporteur on torture and uh, uh, secretary general's representative on, 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 on the issues of avoidance of genocide. Claudio Grossman, again, had to flee his country because of the coup in Chile. He knows what it's like to live in exile, and Claudio, president of the American Human Rights Commission, president and member of the CAT, member of the International Law Commission, Diane Ortlicker and all of her work in war crimes area, both in government and private, and you know Herman Schwartz and what he's done, and I don't want to leave out other people, but I'm saying, uh, you know, we've had more mandate holders within the UN, and more people who have served in positions like three former presidents of the Inter-American Human Rights Commission is uh, no other law school in the United States, much less in, in the hemisphere. North and South can, can really boast that. And I think the benefit for, hopefully for you all, is, is that those experiences are brought back into the, into the classroom. It's just not an academic you know, thing. You can sit back and explain, yeah, this is how it is, and, and they may say this, and you know, your book may by someone who maybe has never filed a complaint before a human rights treaty body, but we've had to deal with these things and so forth. So hopefully that's one of the value added things of coming and, 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 and learning at the WCL. At least I hope it is. We certainly have our work cut out for us uh, with this podcast, trying to capture all the incredible stories uh, that, no, no, that the professors I'm bring sure you'll to, the, do fine. to the school. But yeah. um, I, I guess maybe to uh, to end on, on kind of a lighter note, you've, I mean, you've been all over the world. You've done work all over the world. Is there any particular place uh, that, that kind of holds a special place in your heart? Or? Uruguay. Uruguay? Yeah, yeah, I love Uruguay. It's just I wish my country could be more like Uruguay. I mean, there's such a balanced moderate, really decent people with a small country and uh, great soccer players, great beef, 
but they're very, very decent people. And, and as I said, I kind of cut my teeth by representing my friends and their families. And, uh, you know, it, 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 living abroad at a critical time as Vietnam War, I was in Uruguay and Montevideo when both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were shot, which was, you know, I mean, it was, boy, it was, and Norman Che Guevara was killed in Bolivia, and there were riots and so forth because of the U.S. involvement in those things. You know, it made you see things in a different light and so forth. Uh, but it's a country that, uh, you know, I have other places. I love Buenos Aires. It's one of the great, to me, it's the greatest city in the, in, in, in the whole Western world. I mean, I, I, I was in charge of Argentina for eight years also in the Inter-American Commission, and I adore the city and have many friends and many former students. We have quite a lot of alums in uh, Bogota, I mean, but uh, no, Uruguay is a, always will be a very special place for me. Well, thank you so much for, for well, sitting with us. delighted to do it. Thanks for, thanks for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We'll do our work kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Editing, you know, just do whatever you, you know. <laughs> you do whatever you think is, is best and so forth. And we'll send you um, a copy and get your notes and you let us know what you think. And, yeah. yeah, no, I think it was. No, it was. It was, it, it was fine. Sure. And thanks for letting us bombard you. Yeah. Oh, no. I apologize again for. No, no, I had it down. Of, uh, I No, no, yeah. I had it down. And, but, and you know, I was just. Register on the sites. <laughs> <laughs>